Okay, so we are now uh, going to continue on with our study in Genesis. Most specifically, we turn the corner into Genesis chapter 2, and we've started talking about um, what is often viewed as a, a secondary or alternative distinct account of creation compared to Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 3. Uh, you pick up in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 down to the end of chapter 2 and verse 25 and that's often viewed as this separate distinct uh, creation account. Is it locked? We've invoked a new banishment rule, so just so you know, if you get put out, if you get put out of the room, there may be no getting back in. So don't take your seat for granted. So anyway, we're looking at, uh, obviously, this, this next phase of the unfolding of primeval history that begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And as we've been talking about, this, this does often raise the question in some people's minds, scholars and skeptics and and even those trying to faithfully uh, read and understand and interpret the scriptures, that uh, there's this appearance that Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and following is this distinct um, creation narrative, and the tendency oftentimes is to lay these two narratives of Genesis 1, 1 through, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, side by side with Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, and look at them as, here's one creation account, here's a new, different, but you know, nuanced creation account, and you lay them side by side, and, you, and you're supposed to kind of compare them. In fact, you would have those who would be skeptical of the veracity, the historical reliability of the scriptures, and even those who are just, uh, who, who adopt a more critique-oriented uh, view towards studying the scriptures, um, textual critics, they call them, or, or the, the whole era, the whole um, um, subject or category of scholarship called textual criticism. They would look at this, um, this narrative and starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and they would compare them side by side. And, they would, and as we've looked at uh, previously, you would see what appear to be discrepancies between the two. Uh, you'd, 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 appear to, you'd see what appear to be discrepancies in order of creation of different things that are created. Um, confusion would really be the net result if you, if you looked at them side by side and made the assumption that they're to be looked at that way. So we talked about that at length last week, and I've kind of termed this the side-by-side fallacy of interpreting uh, this portion of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. Um, again, the assumption is that these are two distinct accounts, and um, there's, a, there's a, a focus that often takes place on the second half of Genesis chapter 4 to kind of start this assumption, where it says that in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... So there's this idea that Genesis 2.4 says in, its, in totality that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. But then there's a focus on in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so the, the assumption is, is that that day is a reference back to Genesis chapter 1. And really that day is, is uh, the, the use of the word yom, which means a, a span of time, not a literal 24-hour day, as you see in Genesis chapter 1. So it must be referring to that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens must be referring to creation days 1 through 6 that you see in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? Now, um, 
and just, just as a note to, to clarify, the, the use of the word yom there in Genesis chapter 2 is, is distinct in its context from Genesis chapter 1. And we talked about that at length, how in Genesis chapter 1, you have an ordinal, a number uh, of uh, referencing the day, as well as the solar cycle that's referenced over and over again. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Whereas in this case, it's really a construction that it means in the day of or simply when the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So it's really a general term of in that time frame. So in the, in the, in the context of the actual word itself, the use of the language itself, it is referring to the time of creation. Okay, But the text itself in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, is not specifically... Um, drawing the reader's attention to Genesis 1 and creation's days 1 through 6 in total. What, what, we talked about this last week. What is, what is so important for us to notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 that indicates where this new section is going to be taking us? How does it open up? These are the generations. It's a very important uh, statement that's being made here to give us an indication of where we're headed in the text and to really be able to interpret it properly. And we talked about how this introduces the generations of the heavens and the earth, which is a section that goes all the way through the end of chapter 4. And then you're going to continue to see the same, uh, the same sort of linguistic formula um, repeated ten times, or nine other times, I should say, um, throughout Genesis, where it's introducing these are the generations. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Shem. So you'll have this introduction of this, this term or this phrase and it'll follow with some type of genealogical record. Okay? In this case, it's introducing the generations of the heavens and the earth. So what initially came forth from the heavens and the earth, and what we immediately see uh, the focus turning to is man. Right? The whole chapter is really focused on the creation of man. So what, what often happens, though, is that to, to determine the veracity and the historical integrity of these two side-by-side accounts, they should be compared like this. And as we've said, what do we discover when we use this side-by-side approach? What are some things that we talked about last time that we immediately start to see when we do that comparison, that side-by-side? What do we see? Days don't line up. That's right. You have things that don't seem to be lining up in terms of the order of creation. Creation of man versus the creation of, for example, plants, vegetation, that kind of thing. You see a lot of, of, of discontinuity that seems to be playing out. Um, and, and really the problem is, is that, that that's an incorrect assumption to make that these are two distinct accounts, as we've said. Um, again, the first verse of chapter 1 talks about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it introduces God's sovereign creative work and, and that, that work begins to proceed in successive days of creation. And then it concludes with the seventh day of rest. And then you see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this introduction of the generations of the heavens and the earth, which runs all the way through the end of chapter 4. So clearly two distinct uh, sections that, are, that, are, that we're looking at here with, with different purposes for interpretive clarity. Um, now, the other thing, too, is, is that if you have this side-by-side approach, it, it, it assumes that the, the key interpretive context for Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of the chapter, is the entirety of Genesis chapter 1, okay? 
Now, what is, what is the uh, focal context for Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of the chapter, and this focus on the creation of man? If you're looking back, what is the, the, the more narrow context that we should be looking at in Genesis chapter 1, as opposed to the whole chapter? What creation day are we in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4? Creation day 6, that's right. So, again, the assumption that the that creation day, that, excuse me, that Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 should refer back to, in order for us to understand it, we should refer back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and follow all the way through and start comparing the two. What we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 4 is really just an expansion of creation day 6 with more detail and with a new sort of area of focus and direction in the narrative of man's history. Okay, So you have to keep that in mind as we look at this. We have to make sure that we're not uh, making these, these incorrect assumptions and then drawing conclusions from the text that are really incorrect. Um, again, this also, so in addition to this side-by-side approach, um, failing to see that you're not really trying, you're not really needing to look back for context to the entire creation narrative, but really you could z- zero in on your focus on creation day six, and that's where this is picking up and expanding. But it also fails, this side-by-side approach also fails to recognize that this, this section that we're being introduced to here in Genesis chapter two, verse four and following is this m- grand setting of the stage for what's coming in Genesis chapter three crucial setting of the stage in Genesis chapter 3. And, and really, it, as we said last time, it's so important for us to recognize that, that this begins to answer this question of what happened. Because when you look at Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, what you see there is you see this sovereign God creating in this very orderly way, light out of darkness, bringing order out of chaos. I mean, the earth originally was formless and void. It was a a wasteland, and then light comes forward, and you see land emerging and waters being gathered into seas. You see the celestial bodies being created. You see vegetation and a habitation for man being, you know, springing forth. And you see just this, this cyclical, daily continuation of God sovereignly by command, by just the power of His Word and His will, bringing into order this amazing habitation, this amazing, fruitful um, uh, creation that he brought into, into, into order and into place just by the will of his word and the will of his power. Um, and, and you see God creating man and woman at the end of this uh, creation account in creation day six and creating him in, in, the, in his own image. So you see this intimate... Um, this intimate account of God creating man and woman and, and launching man and woman into this, this uh, responsibility of marriage and family and work. You see that indicated in Creation Day 6. He declares everything good a couple of times throughout that creation narrative, and then he, at the end he says it's very good. So you have this order out of chaos, this beautiful, amazing, created world, this habitation, and then man being created in God's image. And there's this... There's this sense of just order and perfection and, and purity and just this, this unstained, untainted environment. So you and I, and of course the original readers that Moses was writing to, the Hebrews, 
they would be reading this, and if it stopped there, you'd be like, a huge question, like, what, what happened to all that? I mean, I, certainly this is not representative of what my experience is. I mean, I experience floods and droughts in the created order. I see weeds, and I see thorns and thistles, and I experience physical decay. I've seen death. I've seen illness. I mean, we, you, any person would look at that and go, okay, great story, but it has no reflection whatsoever of my current reality. So this, this context of Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 and following begins to set the stage for what's coming to answer this question, what on earth happened here? Um, now, the other thing, too, that I want us to, to notice is that when you look at the way that the actual text flows from Genesis chapter 2 and on into Genesis chapter 3 and the end of chapter 3, again, the challenge that we face oftentimes is, is, is our presuppositions or our ways of thinking when we approach the text of Scripture. And, we, and, we, and oftentimes people who are skeptical or, or just doubters of the truth of Scripture will bring all kinds of data to the text and read that into the text. And then in their reading of the text and interpreting what it's saying or identifying where it must be going wrong, it's that their conclusions are loaded with their own preset ways of thinking. But when you actually just look at the text itself and say, what does it say? How does it flow? And, and, and you, you use that basis to start formulating what it means and understanding what it means and how to interpret it properly, it becomes, it becomes very, very clear. So I want to look at that for just a minute before we kind of move on into the text a little bit more. When, uh, turn, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. And let's look at how the narrative itself, just the text itself, establishes this flow of context in in establishing the the fact that Genesis 2, 4, and following begins to set the stage for what's happening or what's going to happen, what we're going to come to in Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 5, and we'll read there. All the way through verse 9. We're going to read verses 5 through 9 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil. So right there at the beginning, we have this side-by-side comparative mistake that says, well, wait a second. It says there there was no bush of the field, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And then all of a sudden you have man being created and you start saying, what's going on? This is in conflict with Genesis chapter 1. And that begins one of the initial points of discrepancy that is often questioned. But turn to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to read a section of Genesis chapter 3 at the end of that chapter. And I want you to kind of keep in mind what we just read in chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. This is the, this is the end of Genesis chapter 3 and after the fall... And this is in God cursing man and woman. And basically, he's gonna, you're going to see this, this common um, mode in uh, Hebrew historical narrative of this circular referring back to 
where you started in the narrative. Okay, now listen to this. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17, all the way through 24, verse 24. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, which is a direct reference to the language in Genesis chapter 2, the term siah, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants, a seb, of the field. Again, a reference to that opening, those opening lines in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, where it said there were no, there was no bush of the field and no small plant. Those are the same terms that are being used. And again, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, he says the reason why there weren't is because God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Okay? So now you get down to the cursing here in Genesis chapter 3, and the curse is directly related to this, these types of plants. Okay? These types of plants are directly re- related to the curse in the fall. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In other words, you shall eat the plants that you have to cultivate. It's, 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 it's an agrarian reference. It's a reference to, in order for you to eat, you're not going to be able to just kind of walk around and pick stuff, and it's just going to be food for you so easily. That, that's gone now. Cursed is the ground, the Lord says there. So there's a change here in the, in the atmosphere, in the environment in which man is to occupy. So there's that reference from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. You see it picked up again in Genesis chapter 3 at the end of this account of the fall. And then he says in verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Does that sound familiar? Same kind of reference as he talks about when he's forming man out of what? The dust of the earth. Okay? So you just got to recognize these, these reference points in the way that this historical narrative is written um, from a Hebrew perspective. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand... And he's become like, like one of us, knowing good and evil. What was one of the trees in the garden that he talked about in the, in the account? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then he says, Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of, the, of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and the, at, at the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away the guard, turned, that, that, that turned every away, excuse me, that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So you have this reference again to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not specifically saying tree, but now because he took of the tree, he has the knowledge of good and evil. Now we need to keep him from having life by eating from the tree of life. So you have, I'm just pointing out these linguistic references. We're not going to, we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 3 and all this when we get to it. But just do you see how it kind of bookends the narrative here in a very clear and, and even a compelling way to kind of pull all these pieces together, Okay. So the idea here that we need to understand is that we're dealing with an expansion of Creation Day 6, not a side-by-side retelling of the entire creation narrative that's got things all jumbled up and out of order. You've got this uh, reference back to or expanded view of Creation Day 6, but also you're setting the stage for what's coming 
in the fall. Okay? So got to keep that in mind in terms of interpretive clarity. So I want us today to, um, for the time we have remaining, to start to get back to this idea of developing a very clear biblical anthropology, because that's really what we're talking about here when you get into chapter 2, verse 4, and you continue on. You're really starting to develop a, a clear biblical anthropology. Now, you have indications of it that we'll definitely need to talk about a little bit further. We've talked about it already before when we, when we were dealing with these verses. When we were dealing with creation day six, that man was created in the image of God, and he was created male and female, and we talked about the implications of that, and those are, uh, those are um, characteristics of a biblical anthropology for sure. But when you start looking in chapter 2, verse 4, and you start really moving forward, and really uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 3, sets a massive framework for us to understand man, Okay huge of a huge importance so we want to really make sure that we understand that what we're dealing with here is a biblical anthropology the anthropology is i'm sure you would know this but i'm going to read you a definition just so you can kind of have it set in your mind what we're talking about when we say anthropology is the science that deals with origins physical and cultural development biological characteristics and social customs and beliefs of humankind so that makes sense. I mean, that's what we're going to be dealing with in, in the remaining chapters of Genesis. We're going to be dealing with origins, which we already have to one extent, the physical and cultural development, biological characteristics, social customs, and beliefs of humankind. That's an anthropology. Now, <clears throat> if we were to, I want to just do a quick exercise. So I'm going to give you, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm introducing this little exercise, you can be thinking that this is, this is audience participation time coming up. So these long moments of silence on the recording, I mean, people are falling asleep on the road if they're listening to this while they drive next week. So, um, but, but what I want us to think about for a second as a, as a point of introduction into this anthropology kind of um, foray here, thinking back through some of the things that we've talked about uh, regarding evolutionary thinking um, and, and, and all its variants, uh, and approaches to the text of Scripture and the creation account of Scripture. If you and I were to, just for a moment, presuppose what is the predominant evolutionary anthropology, that, you know, what are some logical conclusions we would come to? If we were to, if we were to consider man as a species that has evolved over a long period of time, and, and that evolutionary process has occurred through mutation and natural selection, okay, very natural biological processes over a long period of time. If we were to make that as our starting point for thinking about the study of man and the implications of that study of man, what does it mean to be a man? What are the responsibilities of man? What, what is the purpose of man? What, what are we here for? Any kinds of questions that you might answer about man as an as a, as a object or a focus of study. If we were to have a presupposition that is evolutionary in nature, what are some conclusions that we might draw about man, specifically or just in general? Man as a species or, or you as an individual human being? You as an individual human species. What would be some conclusions we might draw from that? The pinnacle of evolution. Okay, so... Man, when you look at the whole evolutionary chain, right, if man came from some lesser thing, some primordial ooze or, you know, some 
you know, combustion of hydrogen and whatever. I mean, pick, pick your different starting points that you could come up with, right? Then certainly, reference, in reference to all that, look at, how, look at how stellar we are. I mean, seriously. Now, there, there is a parallel there because, in fact, what does Scripture say about us? We're created in the image of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And what do your observational faculties tell you about man and man's genius? I mean, look around. Look, architecture, uh, art, music, mathematics, the sciences. I mean, the, the, the intellectual genius of man on display over the course of history is just, it's staggering. If you've ever been to, you know, some famous museum or you've ever been to some amazing sort of, you know, uh, architectural edifice or... And, and even, even if you look back in, in, in history and you look at old ruins and whatnot and you think about what those people had at their disposal in terms of technology and tools and you see what man was able to accomplish even in more primitive time. I mean, it's just on and on you could go and say, man, we are the pinnacle of the evolutionary chain for sure. Now, if you're, if you're looking at that from a purely evolutionary standpoint, what does that produce in man? Pride. Pride of man, right? What are That's exactly right. In fact, uh, that's, 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 the, that's the flip of the coin. You, you've got this idea that, and I read an article, uh, the, I don't know if it was the founder of PETA, I can't remember what it was, but this, she draws this analogy, you know, a, a man is a boy, is a, or a, is a dog, is a, I mean, just, just direct comparison between the animal world and man. There's no distinction, in other words. There's no nobility that distinguishes man in the evolutionary chain from any other piece of the evolutionary chain. So there's that, there's that other sort of side of that, that idea that, that sort of diminishes the glory of God and man for sure. Now, let's talk about that for a second. So if you, if you, on one hand, if you believe that man is the pinnacle of the evolutionary process, and that produces a great sense of pride, um, on the other hand, if you believe that man is just sort of a cog in the wheel in the evolutionary process, and we're no, really no more special than any other part of that, that chain, um, what does that do? What, what, what does that do to the thinking of man about his world, about his culture, about his responsibilities or lack thereof? What, what, what can that generate in the thinking of man? That we're just one of you know a whole bunch of different steps in an evolutionary process, a bio, just a purely biological evolutionary process. And we're no different than that dog or that spider or that, you know, in, in, in essence, we're no different. There's no distinction. What, what does that produce in the mindset? Despair? Why would it produce despair? Okay, so if it's if it's that kind of thinking turned inward, it becomes a despairing disposition. But what about that kind of thinking turned outward? 
If, I mean, if that's all we are, then that's all you are. I mean, I, I can, it's, 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 if I can overtake you, if I can seize control over you by physical force, or if somehow you're in my way to my sense of carnal satisfaction, whatever it might be. I mean, we're all sort of objects in this biological chain. There's no inherent value there. Now, people would argue against that in the evolutionary world, but I'm telling you, that, that is the world that we live in. That is the predominant psychology of the world that we live in um, that, that, is, that is driving people's thinking on this. It's a lack of value of the image of God in people that, that, is, that is existent in this evolutionary anthropology. Any, any other thoughts you might have on conclusions we would draw if we adopted a purely secular, scientific, evolutionary anthropology? Great point. Yeah, so there's no there's no accountability for your actions. And and that that common refrain of that's just that's just how I'm made. That's just how I'm wired. Just deal with it is really the 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 next comment that you would make. I mean people in other words, it gives us an excuse to not change or grow or to help or serve. I mean if we decide that you know what this is the way I'm wired, and you're just going to have to deal with it. I've got a I've got a anthropological rationale for that. I mean, right? I mean that's how I that's how I'm wired. That's how I was made. It's biological. I can't help it. It's physiological. There's nothing I can do about it. So it, re- it does remove that that sort of that accountability to others, and certainly it completely eliminates any accountability to a lawgiver, a judge. A creator, a holy God, completely obliterates that that point of accountability. That's right. In fact, when you get into sort of the philosophical discussions in this whole arena, um, those that would adopt a purely evolutionary mindset for for man as an anthropology, a basis of anthropology, they do not have a coherent rationale for morality at all. They do not have a coherent argument for right and wrong. Because the only thing that you can do with that rationale is to reduce right and wrong down to a sort of a socially accepted list of do's and don'ts that have been agreed upon by some degree of consensus of a culture or a society. So in other words, everybody kind of votes on what right and wrong is, and whatever the most popular vote is on what's right and wrong, that's what's right and wrong. There's nothing intrinsic or intrinsically good, intrinsically holy, intrinsically righteous, and intrinsically evil or immoral or ungodly. There's no standard against which you measure these things. What we know is that there is a holy God who is a lawgiver and is a just God, and every, everything is measured against the standard of who he is and against his character and against his law and against his perfections. But in, in an evolutionary mindset, you don't, you don't have that. Yeah, and that ultimate decision, it becomes a majority of one. So if there is no absolute truth, and that's the foundation we start from, then, again, morality is nothing but social fabric that we live within. 
That's right. So he's like, yeah, it's okay for you guys, but I'm going to accept it for this reason. There's always lots of reasons. Yep. And so then it becomes essentially anarchy, at least against the individual, although they work within a context of getting their own way. Now, what you do have is you do have, uh, when you think of social systems, um, what you end up having is you end up having either um, a society that is governed by a sense of transcendent principles of right and wrong and of morality and of good and evil, or you have a society that is governed by the force of power and authority. It becomes an authoritarian type of society, and whoever has the power makes the rules, and so we don't follow rules based upon a sense of right and wrong that has been codified in our society's laws. We follow the rules because if we don't, we will be killed or we will be incarcerated or we will suffer punishment. However, because there's that absence of intrinsic motivation, intrinsic awareness of right and wrong that supports that, then you have this constant war between the authoritarian regime and the revolutionary in that society. And that's how those things play out culturally and societally. So you can see when you just start thinking about it, and obviously we barely even scratched the surface. I mean, if we took some time and we really thought about it, we could come up with a whole bunch of different ideas and implications of those ideas about what, what it's like to begin with a, an anthropological viewpoint that is purely evolutionary, purely devoid of any transcendent truth or any reference to a transcendent holy creator God. You have the debasing of human life. You have the disregard for the interests of others as a general principle. You have the breakdown, ultimately, of institutions and societies as, as, as a culminating effect. And you can look throughout history and you can see cultures coming and going based on this truth alone, that they do not have reference to a creator God as a starting point for understanding who they are and how they should function in their society and in the world that God's put them in. <clears throat> Now, I want you to think about these implications, and think about these implications not only historically, you know, you made reference to Hitler as an example, so you can think about those kinds of historical massive reference points, but also think about them in your current experience of life, in our current culture, the implications of this. For example, think about, think about um, recent news regarding uh, the... the, the um, practices of Planned Parenthood with unborn infants and, and just the whole you know, abortion issue. It's very easy to go down that path if you have an unbiblical anthropology. It's very easy to, to, to go there. Even in a culture like ours that we would consider highly civilized, very sophisticated, highly evolved, incredibly powerful, amazingly wealthy, a leader of, of nations, a leader in the world, and yet, and yet our culture protects 
that kind of complete annihilation of a human life in the millions over and over again. That's how sophisticated we are without reference to God. <clears throat> so what I would like for us to do now, now that we've kind of gone down the dark path, let's turn back to the light of Scripture, okay? And I want us to read through this entire section again, and I want you to be thinking about a biblical anthropology. What is man like? Who is man? And let's think about some... I want you to make some observations, okay? This is just an observation exercise from the text. <clears throat> and think about things that you see in this text that stand in stark contrast to the, to the concepts and the ideas that we just, that we just highlighted. And others that, that you may not have said but, but would think of as you read through this. Those kinds of things that just stand in complete stark contrast to what we've just talked about. Starting in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold in that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the, Lord, then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, as we look closely, more closely, in the coming weeks, we're going to identify a few specific uh, um, categories of this anthropology, but just, and I'll, I'll mention them in just a minute. But just for observation's sake, comparing what you just read here, what you can just see from the text, what do we see here as 
categories or terms or descriptors of a biblical anthropology that are in stark contrast to what we just talked about from a secular evolutionary anthropology. Okay. Where do you see that? What else? That's right. You have you have a, a law given, really, basically. Just one. Just one. Wasn't that complicated, right? And think about that. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But what else do we see that that is in contrast to this evolutionary concept of man? Given purpose. Even I mean, even starting like just the you know dominion over. Mm-hmm. Responsibility and dominion. Yep. Yep. Now think about that for a second. Think about that. Just that one category of given responsibility. Okay. Now we're we're talking about creation day six. What does that say about the form that man was created in? Yeah, I mean, he didn't start as a single cell whatever, right? And he didn't start as an infant even. I mean, think about, think about that, that responsibility that he was given. And even, even um, anthropologists will, you know, they'll, they'll talk about primitive man that doesn't even look close to this. But think about this. I mean, this is, what, what does man do at the very end of the chapter when, when, um, the woman is brought to him. What does he? What does he do? He, there, there's a, there's an action there that we see for the first time, for man. He speaks. He has language, communicates. So just think about evolutionary anthropology and how, you know, man. Th- th- man didn't have a, a coherent, sophisticated language for eons of time. But you have here in Genesis chapter 2 on creation day 6, woman is brought to man and he speaks. And he speaks about profound things. Think about the idea of naming the animals all in a part of one day. What kind of intellect would that require? Man in his perfect, unfallen intellect, intellectual capacity. What must have been accomplished? On Creation Day six, what kind of what kind of intellect are we talking about? Now I want you to think about the traditional sort of evolutionary chart where you've got the the different types of mammals, you know, and they, they eventually man is standing upright and walking. You know, he starts off with them bent over and hunched over. I mean, complete contrast to that whole even that whole imagery um, in terms of what we see here. So we could go on and on and talk about this uh, and identify different things, and we're going to talk about them, obviously, in greater detail. But just on the face of it, without even, without even d- digging into each verse and you know, trying to extrapolate what's being said there and talking about it in a lot of detail, just in a cursory reading, in a quick observation, you can clearly see stark, vivid contrast between any kind of evolutionary anthropology when you start looking at a biblical anthropology. 
And you can come up with reason after reason after reason why they stand in complete stark contrast. Now, this takes us back to this idea of those in the, even the Christian community that would try to bring evolutionary thinking into the text of Genesis. It, it's just not there. It, it's, it's just not there in any form or fashion. So, we're going to look more closely at this in the coming weeks. We're going to dig into um, this biblical anthropology, and we're going to focus on a few areas. They're, they just emerge naturally from the text. So here's, here's our outline for the next several weeks. I'll go ahead and give it to you, and then we'll start to dig into it in more detail. We're going to first look again at man's creator. Obviously, we can't overlook that, that we can't start with man, because man didn't start with man. Man started from a creator. So we have some more insight given to us about this creator, God. I said last week that even in this part of the text, the name for God uh, changed. There's, a, there's an addition of Yahweh to the name. So you've got Yahweh Elohim as opposed to just Elohim in chapter 1. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and what some of the implications of that might be for, for really just identifying more attributes of God and who he is as a creator and, and what his, his role and relationship to the creation of man really is indicated by even just by that name alone. But there are other things in this narrative uh, about God that we see that are attributes of God that are so pivotal and important for us to recognize and understand as we understand who we are in relationship to him, okay? So we'll look at man's creator. That'll be, really, that's going to be kind of a, we're going to have to bounce through the whole section of chapter 2, verse 4 through 24, because it's, it's peppered throughout. But we'll just kind of extrapolate those different uh, verses that, that specifically um, reference the creator in some uh, specific way we want to highlight. The second thing we'll look at is man's formation. Man's formation. So you'll notice that in this text, it's not, it's not the, the, the locution of God said, let there be man, and it was so. It's a very different creative process. There's this formation process that takes place that God forms man out of the dust of the ground. So we'll take a look at that and try to understand some things that that might mean for us in terms of understanding who we are as man created in the image of God. We'll look at man's environment. Obviously, there's quite a bit of information about man's environment, particularly the garden environment, the Garden of Eden, and we'll try to talk about that. There's actually quite a bit of detail. I mean, think about why on earth would there be that much detail, that much sort of topography and geography given if this was just fanciful in nature, right? There's a lot of specific reference points here uh, to topography and geography. So we'll look at man's environment. We'll look at man's vocation. So there's discussion about work. Man is, man is a person of work, the nobility of work, and so forth. We'll look at man's accountability. Um, again, that one pesky little command that's just, you know, just too much for us to handle. Um, so man's accountability, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about man's dominion, the dominion mandate that we, we saw in Genesis chapter 1 that is also um, sort of illustrated in a more vivid way in, in Genesis chapter 2. And then we'll close our, our study of this section and look at man's relationships, man's relationships. Now, the challenge for us is to uh, try to get through this in some timely fashion because you could really talk a lot about a lot of these sections. I'll probably spend, uh, obviously... Uh, quite a bit of time on the first couple, and uh, then on man's accountability, and then on man's relationships. Those will probably be the ones we'll spend a lot of time. The other ones we'll probably do in a survey fashion. But that's 
that's the roadmap for where we're headed over the next few weeks, and I'm really looking forward to getting into this with us together. So let's pray, and, um, and then somebody's going to have to go comfort that baby. I feel bad for him.